as Bob already said, my name is Dan Seidelman. I'm associate pastor up at Union Lake Baptist Church in Commerce Township. Um, and thank you for allowing me to to be here. I know I'm I'm filling in in sort of an emergency situation, um, but but it's an honor to me as well. I know that uh, Pastor Dan loves you guys, and there's this sacred calling around the pulpit in this church. And so it's an honor that he would trust me and um, that he would trust Union Lake Baptist for sending me and um, to be partners in the gospel together, striving to make Jesus known in this corner of Michigan. Um, whenever you're invited to preach in another church, it's, it's, it's difficult to decide, you know, what should I actually you know, preach on. I don't know you guys. I don't know your needs. I don't know what's going on in the church. I, I assume your pastor is currently preaching in John. Looked like on the website. It's been a while since you've been in Philippians. Um, but, but the general advice seasoned pastors give, you know, young bucks like me, is that you want to preach something that's simple, that's encouraging, and that's not controversial. Um, and so I decided to preach on eschatology this morning, um, right? Eschatology, as you may or may not know, is a study of the end times. Um, so I'm going to preach on the physical, personal return of Jesus Christ to judge his enemies and vindicate his people, and how we should live as we await Jesus Christ's return. But after I read the text, I think you might be surprised at how this sermon actually turns out. Um, I think you'll be surprised at the way that Paul wants us to live in light of the truth of Jesus Christ's return for his church. So let me read it for us. We're going to be in Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7. Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7. Uh, I'm reading from the ESV here. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's not what we think about when we think of eschatology, the return of Jesus Christ, right? I mean, if you're like the Christians I know, and I'm just going to assume that we're all cut from the same cloth here, then when we think about the end times, we want to talk about things like, you know, building bunkers and the mark of the beast. We want to talk about um, the rapture or the one world order. We want to talk about if you're pre-miller, post-miller, ah-miller, if you have no idea what those things mean. We want to talk about the weeks and the times and times and half the time. And I'm not even going to mention anything from the last 18 months that we want to talk about when we think about the end times. But Paul, when he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, wants us to think about the end times. Instead, what he says is to think about things that are a lot more ordinary, right? Be happy in Jesus. Be gentle with others. Pray to God rather than worrying. 
all of this because Jesus is coming back soon. I mean, the truth that the Lord is at hand, it must affect ordinary people like you and I. We need to see and believe and live in the reality that Jesus Christ is coming back soon in glorious splendor. The gospel will finally meet its culmination and that this truth isn't just for people who are out changing the world. It's also for people who are in their homes changing diapers from morning to night. That all of us can and must live in this reality. So let me pray for us, and then um, I'll, I'll tell you how we're going to work through the text this morning. So let me pray. Heavenly Father, this is a glorious text that we're looking at this morning, a text that human words can't do justice to. But I pray that you would help me as I preach, help me to be truthful and accurate. I pray that you would um, soften all of our hearts to receive your word, that it would come with power, with the same power that your word came and created everything that is. I pray that you would use that power to recreate us, that we might live in obedience and in worship to you. So help us, Lord, we pray, in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. All right, so I want to ask four questions of our text this morning that will guide us through our time together. The first question is, what does it mean that the Lord is at hand? The second is, how then must we live with one another? The third is, how should we then relate to God? And finally, what would be the result if we actually lived in this way? So what does it mean that the Lord is at hand? How then should we live with each other? How then should we live with God? And what would be the result of living in this way? So the first question, what does it mean that the Lord is at hand? You see this little phrase at the end of verse 5, right? The Lord is at hand. This is the doctrine that Paul sets forth to us that he connects everything else in the text to. It's the hub of the command. It's, it's the center of the wheel that all of these spokes are tied to, and it holds everything together. Because the Lord is at hand, then let your gentleness be known by all people. Because the Lord is at hand, therefore don't be anxious, but pray. It's the key to this passage. So if we want to unlock its meaning, we need to understand what does it mean that the Lord is at hand? And, and to, you know, keep things simple, it simply means that Jesus Christ is coming back soon. He's not far off. He's not dilly-dallying. He's not, he's not <coughs> you know, waiting around for this, just this indeterminate amount of time. No, his return is imminent. We don't have time to get our act together before Jesus returns. No, he is at the gate. He is at the door. At any moment, he will return in the fullness of his divine, glorious splendor. And I mean, sure, it's been a couple thousand years since these words were first written, but we don't want to forget what Peter tells us, right? That with the Lord, a thousand years is like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. God doesn't consider slowness the way that we do. We're not all on the same timetable as the Lord. So let us be assured that the Lord is at hand. He will come back. He will judge evil, vindicate righteousness. 
and he will glorify his saints and establish his perfect kingdom where he will dwell with his church forever. I've never thought of the book of Philippians this way. But the book of Philippians is a book that's all about the return of Jesus Christ. Usually I think it's a book about joy, and, and it's true, the two go hand in hand. But, but the return of Jesus is a significant theme throughout this letter. I mean, just turn back a couple pages and look at this. In 1.6, we see that when Jesus returns, he will finish his work in his people. That it will be our ultimate deliverance. We see that in 119. And that in 127, we see that when Christ returns, we will be saved. We won't be those who are destroyed. 2.16 tells us that when Jesus returns, we will see that the preaching of God's word and the belief in that preaching was not in vain. We're not wasting our time and our lives here. In chapter 3, we see that suffering for Jesus Christ now leads to resurrection when Jesus returns. That's our 311. That's our hope as Christians, that we will be raised with Christ when he returns. Because as 320 and 21 say, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we are awaiting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will come and transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We are a people who are waiting this glorious transformation, the completion of our salvation, the culmination, the consummation of the gospel. We have great hope, Christians, because the Lord is at hand. So if that's the truth that we bank our hope and our lives on, what should we do in light of it? Right? The Lord is at hand, so how should we then live our lives? Um, if you're still looking at Philippians 4, let me show you something in the text here. There's a couple of words repeated. It's actually kind of awkward the way that this text reads, but it tells us a lot about the way that Paul thinks as he writes this text. In verse 5, it says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Then in verse 6, it says, let your request be made known to God. On either side of this doctrine that the Lord is at hand, there, there's this phrase, be known, be made known. On either side of this doctrine, there's something that we're told should be well known. First, there's something that should be known about us to others. And then second, there's something that should be made known by us to God. Uh, so those are going to be your next two questions. Again, we'll deal with them one at a time. But let's start with the first one. So if Christ is actually at hand, how should the church be known to others? And this is verse 4 and 5. And the surprising answer that this text gives is we should be known as people who are happy and who are gentle. Happy and gentle. Do you believe that? I mean, because the Lord is at hand, people should look at the church and be like, those people are happy people, and they are gentle people. We live ordinary lives knowing that the Lord is at hand by simply being happy and gentle. The first way, right, is rejoicing. Verse 4 says this clearly. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. We must be happy. 
Now, the key phrase here, of course, is in the Lord, right? Our happiness, our rejoicing, it's not based on our current circumstances. It's, it's based on the Lord who is at hand. Our happiness is not just an emotion to what's going on around us. Rather, our happiness is this settled commitment and principle. It is the bedrock that lays firm underneath all of the circumstances that flow above it. Underneath the tumultuous waves of whatever storm that you're encountering. I mean, there is no reason at all in the Bible to ignore the pain of life so that you can be happy. Because our joy isn't affected by the pain and the circumstances of our lives. Our joy isn't based on what goes on all around us. It's deeper than that. It's more foundational than that. Our joy is in the Lord, who is constant throughout all of our changing situations. Um, the old pastor J.C. Ryle said it this way. He says, Happiness does not depend on outward circumstances, but on the state of your heart. I mean, goodness gracious, in this letter, there are not good circumstances for Paul, for Paul's um, missionary partners, for the church at Philippi. I mean, in 1 7, church, uh, Paul is in prison right now. People are seeking to afflict him while he's there, 117. He's facing his death. He's suffered the loss of all things. He knows about need being brought low, hunger, and trouble. That's in the end of chapter 4. His partner in the gospel, Epaphroditus, he was sick and he almost died on the mission of God. And then the Philippian church who receives this letter, they're fighting opponents from the outside who are trying to frighten them and cause them to suffer. That's 128 through 30. And inside the church, things aren't much better. There's two ladies, <coughs> Euodia and Syntyche, in verse 4-2, that are fighting. I don't know what they're fighting about. Maybe who has the worst name. Um, but they're fighting. And there's situations that cause grumbling and disputing, 2.14. And on top of that, they have these lowly bodies like you and I that get sick and tired, that are limited in their knowledge and ability, and are ultimately going to die. It's verse 3.20. And so in that context, from a prison cell, Paul writes, rejoice. Not only here, but all throughout the letter, Paul is telling Christians to rejoice. I mean, hear me. Joy is not optional for a Christian. It is a command. God demands, with the same authority that he demands, do not murder, do not commit adultery, God demands that you rejoice, that you are a happy person. Which, when life is ordinary for us, when it involves chronic pain, and broken relationships, and uncertain futures, and day-to-day -day inconveniences, this seems like an impossible command, right? Be happy all the time. But God doesn't just make a command for us and say, you know, go figure this out. He also makes a way for us to obey him. He says, rejoice in the Lord, and then he proves that the Lord is joy-producing. I mean, when we live in the reality of who God is, what he has done for us through sending his son, when we consider God's love and his mercy and his beauty and his righteousness, 
when we consider that soon we will be with the Lord whom we love and long to see, that soon our light momentary afflictions will give way to a weight of glory, that when we see him, we will be like him. As I already mentioned, when he returns, he'll transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. He'll establish his perfect kingdom and we'll dwell with him forever. When we understand the Lord as we ought, we will be able to rejoice always. Again, I will say rejoice. I mean, it's, it's almost crazy if you think about it. The way that we live in light of Christ's return is by being happy. And not just by being happy, but look at verse 6 as well. Be gentle. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone, for the Lord is at hand. Actually, most translations do better than the ESV that I'm reading from. Um, they translate it, let your gentleness be known to all. Gentleness, reasonableness, you know, being mild, being ready to forgive, being fair, forbearing, chivalrous, humble, lowly, whatever word we want to put there. There's no reason for Christians to be all stressed out and up in arms all the time. No, Jesus Christ is coming back. Therefore, we must be gentle. We don't just have to be gentle. We have to be conspicuously gentle. Let your gentleness be known to everyone, for the Lord is at hand. I mean, goodness gracious. Maybe this church is different, but I mean, gentleness is not a virtue in our world these days, is it? We like to be outraged. We like to be exacting. We like to be snarky and sniping at people. I mean, anybody here even go on Facebook these days? I mean, if you're anything like me, you are spring-loaded to be impatient, to be harsh, to be demanding. Because I've read the book of James, but apparently I'm convinced that the anger of man will produce the righteousness of God, even though the Bible says the exact opposite. But that's not what we see in Christ, is it? I mean, when Jesus opens up his heart and tells us what he's like, he says, um, he says this, in the end of Matthew 11, verse 28, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavily laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Here's what Christ's heart is like. I am gentle and lowly or humble in heart. And in me you will find rest for your souls. Flowing out from the heart of Christ isn't a drop of impatience or harshness. Rather, the way Christ's heart is, is it's a tidal wave of gentleness and lowliness. I mean, this is the mindset of Christ that was described to us back in, um, in Philippians chapter 2, the text that we read a moment ago. That Jesus did not demand his own rights. Hey, I'm God. You've got to give me what I'm due. But rather, he freely gave up his rights for the good of others even at the great cost to himself. And the text says that we're supposed to be the same way. I mean, did you catch when we were reading how we become like Christ in this? Um, just flip the page to Philippians 2 here, verse 5. Um, it reads, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, 
Right? This mindset of humility and gentleness, of looking out for the good of others rather than looking out for our own rights and what we want. This is the mind of Christ. And because we belong to Christ, this mind belongs to us as well. But let me say it a different way. When Christ saved us through his perfect life and death and resurrection, he brought us into himself. And therefore, we are being transformed to match this Jesus Christ who saved us. And, I mean, one day, we're going to be fully transformed. That's the promise of Philippians 1.6, that he will carry on this work until the day of completion in Christ Jesus. So because we're in Christ, because he's transforming us to be like Christ, this mind of humility and lowliness, it's already ours. Because it's in Christ, and so are we. The call is simply to put on what already belongs to you. We have this attitude by being linked to Christ. We just need to employ it. I feel like I did not clarify that at all. Let me, let me explain this a third way. Every fall, like clockwork, two things happen to me. Um, the first is when the weather switches, I get you know the whole sinusy allergy stuff that happened like a month ago. I'm already done with that, thankfully. And the second thing is I, I lose all abilities to dress myself. Because I look at the weather and it says high of 78. Great, I'm putting on shorts and a t-shirt like every other day and I walk outside and it's snowing for some reason um, when it's a high of 80, right? So it's, it's the evening, it's been 80 degrees all day and I go out to play with my daughter after dinner and I'm in the yard and I am freezing cold because now it's, I don't know, 49 degrees out even though it was 80 this afternoon. And I just stand out there shivering because for some weird, lazy reason, I refuse to take 10 steps inside the house, walk to the, to the closet, and grab one of the six jackets that are hanging there and put it on. The, the jackets are already mine. I just need to put it on. Likewise, so often I stand in this attitude of selfish harshness and impatience because there's this mindset in Christ that's already mine because I belong to him and he's given it to me. But I just refuse to put it on. As people, if we're fully convinced that Christ is returning, that the Lord is at hand, we need to put this on. We are to be happy and gentle, for the Lord is at hand. All right, so let me step out of Philippi and step into, you know, the real world, at least for us for a minute. Let me tell you about my Thursday as I was preparing this sermon. I woke up, no, that sounds peaceful, right? I was awakened by my runny-nosed, congested three-year-old daughter. It, it runs in the family, right? Um, but I wasn't just woken up. Also, our newborn laying next to our bed was woken up. So it's, it's too early in the morning. I have two screaming kids now, both needing diaper changes and both wanting breakfast. So my wife takes the newborn. I take my daughter. I walk into her room to get her changed. And I notice on, on the floor, there's a puddle of water. But her cup, it's a sippy cup. It doesn't leak. But it's standing upright next to it. I'm like, whatever. That's weird, but I'll clean it up in a second. And then I realized, no, the actual problem was, we put a humidifier in her room last night because of her congestion, and I turned it up too high. 
which means the walls, the ceiling, the artwork, the curtains, the blinds, the windows, the, the everything in the room is just kind of dripping with water. And so I start frantically drying it. I don't want anything to, you know, get ruined, get molded. Um, and I, I walk, you know, from one end of the house to the mudroom on the other to get a little step ladder um, so that I can reach the ceiling. And as I'm walking through the living room, I look down and realize the cat threw up on the rug. I'm like, come on. But not only did the cat throw up on our rug, we have one of those robotic vacuum things that goes at night, and Mr. Sucky just rolled on through it and tracked it across the rug. But one crisis at a time, right? So I get to the mudroom, I grab a step out, I take it back, I start drying frantically the ceilings, and I'm tall but not quite tall enough to reach the ceilings, so as I do it, I somehow pull my back out, and I'm just in crazy pain, but like, my wife's you know, taking care of the newborn, she can't help me, and those are the first 10 minutes of my day. So after, you know, stomping around, yelling at my wife and my kids and my cat and my vacuum, right, I get into my car and I have to drive to the office and finish a sermon on being happy and being gentle. And two things I clearly was not. Anybody else ever have a day like this? I mean, these, these days go around. I've been studying all week about, you know, the call to be happy and to be gentle because Jesus Christ is returning soon. And I wanted so badly to be there, but it just wasn't coming. As much as I tried to be happy, as much as I tried to be gentle, I couldn't do it. But as I drove to the church, and I'm back home and to the church again because I forgot my backpack with my computer in it, um, as soon as my phone connected to my stereo, it picked up playing a sermon that I was listening to the night before. And it picked up right at this part on Romans 8.28, a verse that most Christians know and love. I'll quote it at length here. It says, when Romans 8.28 says, and we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose, we have a taste of the kind of things that are included in the all things. It's not all good things. It's all things, including all the bad things. In fact, the whole context before and after Romans 8.28 is painful. That's why Romans 8.28 is here. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm tracking with, you know, bad things happen. It continues. Romans 8.17 says we will be glorified with Christ if we suffer with him. Verse 18 says that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. Verse 20 says that the creation, including us, is subjected to futility. Verse 21 says creation is in bondage to decay. Verse 23 says that even our spirit-filled Christians groan with a fallen creation, awaiting our adoption, the redemption of our weak, sick, and dying bodies. Verse 24 says we've been saved in hope, and you can't see hope, otherwise it wouldn't be hope. So most of our salvation is still invisible and still in the future. No wonder we're groaning. And then verse 35 says there are tribulations and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword. And in the middle of this, to give us strength and hope and courage, verse 28 says, yes, all of this is true, and we know that all things, all the suffering and futility and bondage to decay and groaning and tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and peril and sword, all of these things work together 
for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. You know what shook me from my sinful, selfish slump on Thursday morning? It was realizing this present age is not all there is. Life is more than cat vomit and setting up fans to dry the walls. The world is groaning in bondage to sin. Man, we feel that every day. I mean, some of us feel it in more significant ways than a hurt back. I'm here preaching because your pastor's family feels the world groaning in significant, painful ways. But there's something better coming. When Jesus appears, he will glorify me and you to be like him. He will set us free from this futility. He will transform our lowly bodies with sore backs and sore attitudes to be like his glorious body. I have hope. I can rejoice because the Lord is at hand. On that day when Christ returns, he will finish the work that he started in me. Oh, praise God for this. I love this. I don't know about you, but I hate the way that I am in my sin. I hate that I'm trigger happy to be in patient with others, especially with those I love most. And I hate that I'm hopeless to change myself, and no matter how hard I try, it seems that I can't change. If you ask me, God is working too slow in my life. I don't want to be impatient. I don't want to be simple. I don't want to be grumpy and harsh. I want to be happy and reasonable. And I, as I've seen God's grace in the past, I know he'll continue. And when Christ returns, he will finish the work he started in me and in you. When Christ returns, he will utterly transform us, not to be like our sinful selves that we are today, but into glory. He'll translate you and me. So we have great reasons to hope. The Lord is at hand. Now, of course, I still need to, what, dry the walls, buy a rug, take a leave, apologize to my wife and my kids, and cat and vacuum. But, but these things, they're not set in perspective, right? I'm, I'm not bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, but the fact that the Lord is at hand, it helps me to bounce back out of my sin rather than just being stuck in the slog and staying there with my bad attitude for the day. It helps me long for Christ to return when he will transform us so that we are perfectly gentle and happy when we will be with the Lord and thus be like him. If we believe that Jesus Christ is coming back soon, we should be. We must be the most conspicuously gentle people on the planet. You and I both know we're not going to be perfect in this, but it's what we strive for. We trust Jesus to empower us, to forgive us when we fail. We strive to be conspicuously gentle. I say conspicuous because of text. We already said this. It doesn't say be gentle. It says let your gentleness be known. It needs to show off to others. It's universal. There's no caveat here. It doesn't say, you know, if there's relational discord, you have an excuse. This is our reputation. Be 
gentle unless you're in legal proceedings. Be gentle unless you have a cutthroat work environment. It doesn't say these things. It says be gentle. Whether you agree with the government or not, be gentle. Whether you treat it fairly or not, be gentle. We don't have an excuse not to have this mind of Christ from Philippians 2. We have no excuse to grumble or complain or to be harsh or impatient. For the Lord is at hand. And this impossibly high standard forces us to depend on Jesus Christ. I mean, hopefully we have some measure of spiritual maturity, but I know I can't do this by myself. I can't deal with the pressures of life and then the added pressures of being happy and gentle all the time. I can do a lot, but this is too much for me. I can't carry it all. But that's where our third question comes in. And the three and four will be shorter than the other ones. Don't, don't worry about that. Since the Lord is at hand, how should we be known to God? We should be known as people who trust God with the weight of this world and all of our concerns. With hurt backs and ruined rugs and wet walls, with persecution and famine and the sword and death and pain and futility, we don't bear this burden on our own and grow anxious about it. Rather, we depend on the Lord to carry it. Look at verse, uh, verse 6 here. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I'm confident that you have a lot to worry about. I have a lot to worry about. We all do. But when we worry, we're living as functional atheists, right? We live like the Lord is not sovereign. He's not in control of all things. Like he doesn't love us and care for us and have authority over all of history. We're living like the Lord is not at hand. It's up to us to make this world right. But that's not reality, is it? We do have a God who cares. We do have a God who can help. So we don't let our uncertainties of tomorrow rob us of this joy today. We don't let the weight of tomorrow make us harsh rather than gentle. We're sons and daughters of a God who's already dealing with tomorrow. The Lord is at hand, so we trust him fully. Instead of worrying, we pray. Verse 6, right? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication. That's an intense word for prayer. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Worry about nothing. Instead, pray about it all. Don't burden yourself with it and lose your joy. Don't burden others with it and not be gentle. Burden the one who can never be burdened, and he will carry it. Do it through desperate prayer and thanksgiving and God will uphold you. Know that Christ will return to finish his work. He will set all things right. He will vindicate the righteous. And so with thanksgiving that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above, we pray, and we trust, and we thank God, which leads to our joy, which leads to our gentleness. This is all connected. And when we live in light of Christ's second coming, we get a great result. Which is our last question for the morning. What's going to happen? What's the result if we live this way? If we believe that Christ is coming soon, so we are happy and gentle, and we put our burdens, we let our requests be made known to God, 
What's going to be the result? And verse 7 tells us, it says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The peace of God will guard your heart and your mind. I mean, I mean, think about God, right? God's not anxious about anything. God's not worrying. God's not fretting. He doesn't worry about the things we, we do. He knows the end from the beginning. He knows the whole course of history. He has a plan in it. He has power over it. Nothing catches God off guard. Nothing's out of his control. There's nothing for God to worry about. I mean, he has this perfect peace, this shalom of God. And this is the peace that God gives to us when we trust in him. He, he puts it over us like a blanket, or maybe like a, a, like a sleeping bag, so he zips it up on us and it's hard to get out of. We have this peace of God, this experience of his shalom. We have this knowledge that, you know, things aren't great here, but my God is in control. The Lord is coming back soon, and he's going to take care of all of it. This world is not all there is. Even when we can't see it, we know the Lord is at hand, and this peace of God is going to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Um, if you lived in Philippians, when you got in Philippi, when you got this letter, uh, one of the key benefits of living in the Roman Empire at that time was was the Pax Romana, is what it's known as, the Roman peace. It was a pretty safe and peaceful place to live, right? There wasn't a lot of military conflict. The, the empire was pretty calm um, because the Romans had this strategy to put garrisons of soldiers all around the empire whose job was to keep the peace. If they saw re rebellion swelling up, they would instantly squash it, right? And, and there's not a lot of you know, crime and conflict when a soldier's going to kill you if you rebel. Um, and, and Philippi was one of these garrison towns. It was a military town. One of the major stations of soldiers was in Philippi. And so when they read this, they would have heard the words, you know, the peace of God will garrison, that's the literal word here, your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. They would have looked out the windows, saw the soldiers, and known, this is... This isn't just that, yeah, the peace of God is a delicate ecosystem that's easily broken. No, they would see the peace of God as a fighting peace, a mighty peace, a powerful peace, a peace that would protect you from anxiety, from worry, from losing joy and gentleness. It would allow you to be pressed, but not crushed. It would allow you to be perplexed, but not driven to despair to be persecuted but not forsaken, to be struck down but not destroyed. It keeps you from falling away from Christ even in the difficulty of your life. It guards you so you can experience God's perfect peace. And until Christ returns and sets up his kingdom of perfect peace, where there's healing for the nations, where we're called to beat our swords and the plowshares, and when the lions are laying down with the lambs, we have this peace of God. You want this? I mean, this is the peace that we need in order to be happy in the Lord and gentle towards others. How do we get it? You seek the Lord. You go to him in prayer with desperate thanksgiving. And because the Lord is at hand, the kingdom of peace is our hope. 
And until his glorious return, he has told us what sort of people we should be. People who are happy and who are gentle and who cast our burdens on the Lord rather than growing anxious about them. I think the church has an amazing skill. We're really good at making ourselves miserable. I mean, so often we take the return of Christ, this glorious truth, and we morph it from being our blessed hope of the appearing of our Savior, and we turn it into something dreadful. Now, I'm not denying that it will be dreadful for unbelievers. That is clear throughout Scripture. But when Paul is writing to the church, he says, because the Lord is near, this isn't a negative thing. This is a great hope for you. Because the Lord is near, don't think your job is to fight off some secret cabal or government. Don't think your job is to be on high alert for the Antichrist or tracking trips or the One World Order or the Mark of the Beast, whatever that is. Don't make yourselves miserable because the Lord is at hand. Rather, make yourselves trust in the Lord. Lean on him who will cause you to be joyful in him. God doesn't want us to be miserable because the Lord is at hand. God wants us to be happy and gentle and free from anxieties. So because the Lord is at hand, let us do just that. Let us be the most joyful, the most gentle, and the least anxious people around. Oh, that we would delight in the Lord as we await our Savior from heaven, because I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in that day of Christ Jesus. Amen? Thank you.